Welcome to Mission Forward, a podcast exploring how big ideas in social change take hold. My name is Carrie Fox, and I'm your host. Listen in as we talk with innovative thinkers, makers, and doers in social change, and we explore how foundations, philanthropists, and corporate and community leaders are challenging business as usual in order to move missions forward in meaningful and memorable ways. Hi, all. Welcome to this episode of Mission Forward. We have got a great show coming up today on the economics of inequality, featuring my friend and advisor, Karen Warzazek. By title, Karen is Principal and Senior Director of Financial Planning at Sullivan, Briette, Spiros, and Blaney. But that is hardly enough to understand what she really does and the impact that she's making in the world. Karen is an expert on socially responsible and impact-oriented investing and financial planning. She's led impact initiatives for two privately held family offices. She's former chair of the Washington Area Women's Foundation, and she's the founder of the Pomona Society, a collective of women in impact who come together to affect systemic change for women and families in DC. In full disclosure, She's also my advisor in restructuring our company's 401k offering to be aligned with our company's mission and values, and she remains our closest advisor on all things impact investing. For today's conversation, we are building upon the conversation we had with Carolyn Lowry a few weeks ago, in which we focused on the inner work that is required to understand how privilege, power, and racist systems and structures play out in today's society. And as Natalie Burke and I discussed earlier this season, before we can dismantle those white supremacist systems, we must understand our role in those systems. So to help us along this journey, I am taking us back to June when I interviewed Karen as part of our community conversation series. In light of the wide and growing inequalities across our society, many of which COVID has only further intensified, she and I wanted to explore the role that business leaders and philanthropists play and how we use, spend, and save our money that either drive principles of justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion forward, or perpetuate harmful inequities. We're going to start in on what it means to be an impact investor, and then we're going to really dig into the issue. By the end of this show, having shared some really practical tips that we can all take, business owner or not, to drive a more equitable and inclusive economy. Stay tuned. Sure. No, thank you. And um, I'm extremely honored to be here. And um, anytime we can have the conversation around economic justice um, in front of as many people as we can, um, I will gladly sign up to to do that. Um, I have been on an impact and I call environmental sustainable and governance investing agenda for nearly 20 years. So I'm about 17 years of my 24 in the industry, in the investment industry. I have dedicated a lot of that around purpose capital. And so that really originated many years ago in working with a West Coast family who um, monetized a lot of their wealth that was in Timberland in the Pacific Northwest and started a really large family foundation. And it was my introduction to what mission alignment really should look like. And I was asked to help lead that foundation's program. And for the first time, some some bells started going off as to this misalignment between what we what we have as expectations for grant capital and then what we then on the other side of the balance sheet don't have expectations similar expectations in investment capital and so I I really felt like I, I kind of landed in this wonderful seat to start leading that conversation for this particular family and start to have some meaningful impact on regard regardless of what side of the balance sheet that that capital was on and have really been evolving that work ever since. I am a certified financial planner, also certified trust financial advisor. And that's important because a lot of the monies that we own live in different kinds of structures that we don't really think about separately from our how we kind of live and work out in our daily lives from how we're actually owning our 
owning our money and what we're doing with that. And so I help families on a day-to-day basis and nonprofit organizations kind of think about the best strategies for for that money, for their money, um, and making sure that if their intention is to have alignment, what is mission alignment or values alignment? How is that expressed? What does that look like? And so I... On the other side of that, have had the good fortune of starting an organization really, really focused on how to alleviate poverty. This is an, an area of impact, impact investing that's very near and dear to me. And what I have witnessed over the years and solutions that are working, I organized Pomona Society around this idea of social entrepreneurship and project management that really are rooted in economics and rooted in entrepreneurship and job creation. And so with that lens, helping lift women and girls and their families um, out of poverty. So so I come at this conversation from both the private sector investment hat, but also from the nonprofit philanthropic hat. Um, and that's how I met Carrie. So so very happy to be here today. So what I find so fascinating, we were talking about this the other day, is this tug of war of the positions that you sit in, that you have what I think is a very refreshing perspective on financial planning work and strategy, that it's more than just raising financial equity, but equally about driving social and economic equity through those investments. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more maybe about your your personal journey, maybe in however you think makes sense, but how you got to have such an interesting perspective on that tug of war between that the, the equities, essentially, that you spend your time looking at. Yeah, no, that's a good question because oftentimes the financial planners and investment professionals, um, we get painted with one brush, right? And so that we're in this profession as technicians who are just looking for a market rate return and meeting a financial hurdle, full stop end of goal. Um, I grew up in, and, and I've given a talk about this, I, I myself grew up in the Midwest in extreme poverty. So in a, in a circumstance in a family that represent a lot of the households I try to help today. And what I learned in my profession is that, that the stakeholder net is much wider than just the investor, meaning that if you're, if you're looking at making an investment in a company, are you thinking about all of the components that make that company profitable and your contribution to that? So whether in, in legacy investments, pre-ESG, environmental sustainable governance investments, which today I'll just kind of call ESG, so I don't have to say that out the whole time, but you didn't actually you you didn't actually consider any other stakeholders other than the investor making the investment in the company. Now, when you fast forward, you actually have seen the effect of that have being negative. So you see wealth disparity growing because when you have only one stakeholder you're in service to, meaning the shareholder, all of the all of the community participants, the employees, individuals in the supply chain that you buy and source goods and services from if you're if you're doing that in ignorance of the effect on all of those stakeholders you ultimately don't have anymore a company that's probably sustainable into many generations and so it's become really a risk management technique that i like to look at investment planning and financial planning through and i also use a lot of and so my own personal experience in there where it's relevant is knowing all of the very the variety of ways that i learned to kind of overcome and either keep pace with education that I needed to have to be in this space to compete outside of, say, the wealth station I grew up in, which is going to be later in this conversation and why that's so important. And we have things to do that we need to action on that today, I think, um, in this moment in time. But all of my lived experience comes full full center on that financial planning effort for families who come and they're living in the communities. And so they're not two different people. They're not saying, hey, I, I want to ring fence myself or away from all these issues and just just grow my wealth to meet only my goals. That maybe what, what you're saying initially, because it's your balance sheet, but at the end of the day, you're putting your money in motion in your community, affecting a future employment workforce, future future student population. And so this notion of how do I align those values around community, those values around education or health justice or racial justice 
in how I'm using my capital. Um, and so I think my perspective is unique because I've lived a lot of what some of those um, solutions are. And then I can kind of share that in real terms and actually put some math behind it to show where there's actually progress in returns that you can actually live your values, invest your values, and have the positive outcome in the community and your own personal balance sheet. And so I think the world's catching up a little bit to that now. Because we're seeing like the kimonos wide open in this perfect, I call imperfect storm of a pandemic and poverty. And so you're actually seeing where some of us who have choice to, we all, we all have choice to work from home. I'm not really in jeopardy of losing my income if I choose to not go into our office because I'm worried about the health of my family. And that isn't the case for so many. And so, um, so that's kind of the, I think of financial and investment planning really holistically in that, in that full program approach. Um, so people can actually see the outcomes that they're looking for. So you mentioned the word progress. I want to go back in time a little bit first, and then we'll talk about where we've come. But I was reflecting on some research recently tied to the war on poverty, which many folks on this line might recall as having been launched by Lyndon B. Johnson in 1964, when the poverty rate in the U.S. was 19%. Fast forward more than 50 years, and the founding of more than 2 million nonprofits whose missions in some way, shape, or form are all tied to breaking the cycle of poverty, and the poverty rate has barely changed. In fact, and by many accounts, it's grown. So as you reflect on this, where we've come in 50 years, where we're going, especially given the moment of time we're in, where do you see investing as having gone wrong after all these years? It's interesting because investing, where investing has gone wrong, because I agree. And actually, if you apply, if you actually inflate, adjust the poverty gap, we are in worse numbers than that, that absolute data would show. So in the past 50 years, a lot of things have happened in public education that have been degraded um, from, and I'll get into kind of how we fund that and why that is. And that's a different kind of investment that we make that doesn't return the same kind of dollar that a big tech firm will return for you. Um, so in the, in the area of the public space where we've gone wrong on the war against poverty, there are a few things that I, I would point to in that time period. We've gone through a series of economic hardships in that time and the Great Recession in that last 50 years. We had the terror attack, 9-11, and we've had other bumps in the road that aren't quite as extreme, but have exacerbated the those that don't have a living wage and pushed them even further into poverty, just like we're seeing today with COVID. And so in the numbers coming out um, post-COVID, economic numbers are not looking good at all for those living below the poverty line. And so where we've gone wrong is that companies on the, on the investment side, we have thought about that investment from one lens, that singular stakeholder of a shareholder. So a board of directors gets together and they're only in service. They have always believed and some, some Warren Buffett's actually been one out there saying that should be all we believe in. We should be in service of the shareholder who buys that share. Whereas you have on the other side of that, Larry Fink in the business roundtable and participants to the business roundtable who've come out and said, Actually, we have a whole wider net of stakeholders, and I'm in that camp. I'm with that because what the data are showing us now, and, and this is where investments didn't happen. This is a very recent phenomenon. So the entire 50 years were the single shareholder kind of loyalty. And that meant, and what that meant is you didn't have diverse boards that represented either your um, workforce or your consumer base. And you also had wage disparity that are hundreds of hundreds of multiples of your lowest wage worker inside of organizations. And you also didn't think about, you didn't pay attention to what you were doing to planet or people that aren't directly associated with your company, right? So now if you fast forward, all of those are stakeholders that we want to think about in ESG investing and values-based investing. 
And so the hope, the hope going forward is that if we expand who we believe we're affecting when we're making an investment in a company, then we will change that outcome. And so it's funny, a finance professor in graduate school once told me, change the facts, you change the answer, Karen. And I'm like, that always stuck with me. And it's like, okay, if our, if our new set of facts say that, okay, we can deliver on a higher performance in a company because we have more represent, more representative voices of who we're serving, then we'll actually grow in a way that meets the needs that really are out there and not kind of in this singular lens that we had previously done. And what we'll also showcase by hiring a diverse workforce. And one thing I do hope we have time to get to today is, is mobility and education and work because it's going to change the poverty story tremendously going forward um, post COVID. And when you start to hire diverse workforce, you actually start to get in proximity with people that don't live like you do, look like you do, experience life the way you do. And that's informative. So that's informative to whether you write regulations around a 401k and, oh, wow, I didn't realize that our health plan didn't cover these issues because they didn't affect me those issues. I can't tell you how many business owners that have come to me and they've written a health plan or an or, or a savings and retirement plan really around their own perspective of what it should look like, not who will be the consumers of it, your employees, right? Those are the people you're really protecting in that. And when you start to actually incorporate other people into your companies and into how you're going to deliver goods and services, you start to change and incorporate policies that are going to help grow their wealth because they're, they're employees. They're not going to, they're typically not owners of equity in your company. And so the only way that they can make a living or grow their wealth is through a, a conference retirement plan and through something that isn't um, completely eroding their, their disposable income on the healthcare side, but coming out the other side childcare and wages, right? So those are the typical components that go into how we either grow wealth or we don't. 84% of the stock market is owned by the top 10% of the country, right? So that, and, and if you think about a bull market, well, we, we get so excited right now, but who's participating in that, right? So that that small sliver at the top of that in, in that part of the pie are representing the bulk of those rewards that came out of this past decade. And they've been tremendous. And, and so now you're seeing that gap widen, but that's how you think of, you should think about investment in a company. Is, are they going to be around into the future and are they managing future risks that are, I think now social risks. And um, if we're not thinking about, um, and I have said this to you before, Karen, another one of our conversations, I'm a, I'm a, I have one child, so a single child, and um, I care a lot about funding education for lots of children because my hope is, and not just my child, um, yes, I hope he ends well, right? I hope his story ends well, but where, what talent pool will he draw from if I'm not paying attention to where we have disparity in community to have future employees, colleagues, or people he hires, right? And if we all kind of step back and kind of thought about that a little bit more, then we really change the landscape of how we develop workforce from a policy perspective later. But all of that's that's all an investment. You can kind of guide that. You vote with your dollar, right? Money is power. And so by not investing in a company or investing in a company, you're giving an affirmation or not that you approve of what they're doing. Right. And you know what I think is so fascinating about your approach is it's basically the foundational principles of B corporations, which as you know, we are one and very proud to be one. But it's still, while it's been around for many years, it's still an infancy of a movement. And yet I think it is having great influence in how businesses are operating, how businesses are setting principles and values and abiding by those values. Right. The core principle and and value of benefit corporations is that capitalism should work for everyone, <laughs> um, not, not just for a select few, right? And, and it should work for the long term. However, it won't unless you really, really challenge the systems and structures inside 
And you do have to force that right. because that's where governance, and this is where we have, we're having kind of the, the economy earlier about the kimono wide open is that you're seeing now that not everyone had the opportunity to take out a loan and buy a house, right? And, and, or start a business. There are, there are series of regulations from the federal government all the way down to local and municipal, uh, different regulations that have eliminated or not given a fair look at people that would otherwise have succeeded had they had that same access to capital, that same education opportunity. And that's been, that's the piece that's, it, you know, it's unfortunate, but it is exciting to have it wide open because you can actually look through and, and see that. And uh, the, with B Corps, uh, you know, I was excited when Benefit Corps kind of took on and because it, in, in the next wave of it, we'll really be saying, okay, these are for-profit companies. In the early days of Benefit Corporations, they were, okay, well, we're going to give a nod to this for-profit company and let them kind of carry out and practice like they're a nonprofit. Right. And so there, there were some accommodations and concessions embedded in taking on a B corporate, a benefit corp certification. Hmm. And now I think it's in the next leg that they get a showcase. They get to be front and center. And I think leaders in a movement that are addressing issues that is this wider stakeholder net like your company is doing, right? And so it's not just about the clients you're trying to bring on and, and help and serve, but it's also about the people you put around you and the people you rent your space from and the people that you, you know, host parties and cater from and are, are all those people that you touch expressing values that you actually put a stamp of approval on in a benefit corp, right? And as companies come on more and more and more, and, and just a, a little fact for this group, um, ESG funds during, since 2021, since the start of 2020 and even into the second quarter with the Q1, had net positive inflows exceeding traditional investments. And I'll talk about kind of why that is. And it's a lot about living wage. You know, are you high? Companies are getting more dollars because this, because this, oh, wow, I'm actually affecting disproportionately. I'm not going to support a company right now that is mistreating, say, their black workforce, right? People are actually asking those questions now of companies. Um, and even I think that you have talent management issues. I'm personally not going to work for a company that is mistreating certain workers and also not giving equitable retirement or health or healthcare plans or childcare programming that really affect the uh, bottom half of the employment base because that's where the wealth is not growing. So that's stagnant. That That's how you vote with your dollar. And you also vote if you're a talented employee and you can have influence inside of your company. I do that. I make sure that my voice is, is heard around policies we put in place in our company to build out diversity. And, and we're guilty, you know, the finance sector is extremely guilty, uh, kind of a, a racial bias to white men, racial and gender, right? Been battling this for decades. And so, and we're coming a long way, but we're nowhere near there yet. All right. We're going to turn our attention to what we are calling the triple threat of inequality. So when we talked earlier this week, you really honed in on this intersection of three sectors, education, workforce, and healthcare, that all collectively contribute to the majority of inequity that we see in the U.S. I would love you to talk about those systems and how maybe some of the investments that are going to those systems actually drive inequity, and then we'll build back up and, and go on from there. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so I, I've always thought about these three silos because they, they within them, by, by sheer numbers, affect the most amount of people in each of those, in each of those segments. We depend on feeding a really prolific workforce through a pipeline of early care and education and little humans that we grow up into what is a future workforce. And we care a lot about all of those two collectives in what ends up being our healthcare delivery service. And so with education, what has been interesting and, and we've 
and really you can kind of mark it and go back about 50 years, but we haven't actually had a material change in how we deliver education. It's in kind of think the one room classroom approach. We, we convene students in a classroom. We deliver it with one teacher. Oftentimes we may rotate materials, but sometimes that it's not necessarily, and it's actually budget crippling oftentimes to schools. But the but the thing we haven't really disrupted over time, and where the inequity has been born, is not so much that modality that we call it, whether it's a tech classroom or whether it's an in-person classroom. But it's really we're not funding equally. So for those who don't know, we currently fund public education through property tax and ad valorem taxation system. So through property taxes. And then there's there's federal subsidies, of course, that are granted to kind of uh, populate the um, food programs and other kind of wraparound support programs that each of the districts need for uh, children living in, in the kind of two times the poverty rate or below for free and reduced price lunch, for example. But aside from that, there really is great disparity because you can imagine a zip code in McLean, Virginia, where you have a, a Langley High School that is getting fed property tax dollars where the minimum house is about a million dollars and then on up on average. And you compare that to schools, public schools in Ward 7 or seven or eight and others all across all across the district, but largely kind of east of the river. The there there isn't even a fighting chance, and so what you're losing in that, and you're you're almost there's a wonderful book that talks about kind of the apartheid in American schools, and this you're you're indirectly creating that, um, you're creating segregation, you're creating, and one of the one of the big predictors of success in education and for children coming out of poverty is socioeconomic diversity. So what has been really shown over the past decade is that mixing different wealth stations together, not as much race, that that isn't as as informative, but but blending, you know, socioeconomic children together has shown the greatest outcomes for success for those children. And so one of the, and this is a, this is a policy problem. So the solution is really, and you're seeing it in um, with COVID when everybody, so if you can imagine if you're in a district and you now have to shut down schools and all of these kids who many are, you know, essential living in essential working family homes that aren't going to stop working. They're going to be more exposed to a virus we're just learning about in those early days and how to kind of combat that. Um, there isn't childcare anymore. All of that shuts down. And that's another part of the education economy that got, that was shut down. And then you have children who don't really have ready and able parents, oftentimes the bandwidth just isn't there because of a couple of jobs and their essential workers. And a lot of us, quite frankly, don't have the patience to teach our children. I, in full disclosure, learned my weaknesses in teaching my son over those early days, and I was not an ideal teacher for him. We lose our patience, right? And so what you find is that these homes aren't equipped. I was talking to one of the superintendents in the Prince George's County, and there's lack of there's lack of technology, which you 100% need to rely on to have a virtual program. There, so majority of students are going home to disrupt. Sometimes no no internet or broadband access. People have cell phone plans. It's interesting, but they won't have in home broadband access. And so, all of these packages together are quite expensive. Um, and so one of the one of the ways that I think you can create some equity and that didn't probably get fully funded in um, kind of the CARES Act and the packages, the stimulus packages, is really delivering technology to homes to create virtual learning environments. And, and in fact, this has been on a topic of discussion, you know, kind of universal access to broadband. I actually posit that it, it should be treated no, not dissimilarly to a utility like water or electricity. And especially if it's going to be the only vehicle by which you can deliver education and keep the playing field somewhat even. And you can worry about who teaches it. That's a different riddle to solve. But even just accessing it and tapping into different content, many are unable. And so you already have what's known as the homework gap that many of us know about in our public education system. And so children in um, 
poorer districts tend to come back to school in the fall um, and or throughout the year unable to do homework at all. So we, a lot of our public schools now have really kind of stopped and either slowed down dramatically or stopped issuing homework altogether for this reason to kind of create some equity in that in the outcomes of this homework gap. What you end up having is students coming back a full scale, a full school year behind and spending the fall typically playing catch up. And that's a real problem. None of us should really be rooting for that. And so, and a lot of it is simply because there just isn't access to do anything outside of the classroom. And what, if anything, COVID has revealed is I, I think a policy around uh, broadband and widely distributing and funding broadband to homes, there's something like 20 million homes in the U.S. don't have access to broadband today. 20 million. And so you think about all of the homes that are in districts that have few headcount and teacher numbers, and then you have, you have a quality of teacher and you have a headcount issue, right? So just your ratio of student to teacher is skewed. But what if you had access to broadband as a policy, you redistributed property tax dollars a bit more evenly, and now children don't have to rely on just that teacher that's assigned your particular school. You can actually tap in, and this is what I'm calling kind of education mobility. That I'll talk on workforce mobility in a minute, but education mobility would be a powerful leveler. Because now you could decide as a parent, hey, my school's inadequate, my teacher's inadequate, I'm actually going to sign up for a virtual class that's in this other district or does it delivered through private private education, whatever it is, but you'd, you'd create some more choice and you'd find the best teacher for that subject and not be held hostage to whatever the district decided they needed to do with your class. And virtual, virtual or in person isn't the right, either or not the right recipe for everybody, but some mixture is. And I think if you could access better teaching quality and better content outside of what your poorer school is getting due to funding, this could be a way policy to do that and create education mobility. We do it at the university level all the time. I mean, look how we can now do online four-year degrees and master's degrees and online MBAs from anywhere, right? But I think feed, getting that pipeline from the kind of cradle up is more important than kind of our university problem solving. That's kind of baked right now, <laughs> but but you can alter the course of a child. And if your zip code is already a predictor of your success, well, let's artificially create a new zip code, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's probably how we need to think about it. Why are we, why right. are we confined to our physical space? Why don't we create a different zip code that I get to go choose, even if I don't physically live there? Right. And it comes back to this moment we're in that we would have never been given this opportunity if not for COVID, right? To literally stop and reimagine education. And, and so it's, it's it. the question of what, right, what will we do? What yeah. will education do? Yeah. I just want to pause on something real quick that you just said that I want to capture and then I'm going to have you talk about workforce. But we talked about that triple threat, the triple yeah. threat of, of inequality being education and workforce and healthcare. And we have worked for many years with an organization called the Family Independence Initiative. And I think you've heard me talk about their founder, Mauricio Miller. They talk about the antidote of inequality being choice, capital, and connection, social capital specifically, and connections. But to your point on choice, it so much of it comes down to there is very little, if any, choice for many families. And so they are, you're, they are you're stuck in a hostage. cycle of inequity. And I completely agree with um, social capital comment. And they, we call it social capital. That is exactly the data coming out with mixed socioeconomic classrooms. And it's because you're making friends with other individuals that now can help influence and network you differently than you otherwise would have, black or white. Right. And that's social capital. And absent, absent that, because it already another data, another really interesting figure is it takes about five generations for a child living in poverty to get back to that median household income. 
right? And so to, to get to their community's average median, it takes five generations. And so the, the one of the only way we marry in our wealth stations, we because we, we meet people in college, right? And so they come from a similar standing. And so we've constructed our society in these silos that are very much around wealth and access to it. And so I've always been, and I, that's why I call a lot of what we're seeing an economic justice problem that absolutely disproportionately affects race, but for certain, um, an economic justice problem. Anyone, regardless of color, living in extreme poverty can attest to the struggles of trying to participate in the mainstream economy. And it's nearly impossible in lots of ways. And it's done in uh, multiple service-oriented jobs that are kind of patchwork together to feed a family of two or three or four. And um, not ideal, right? But social capital is everything. I, I believe that. All right. Pause again. I'm going to have you get a workforce in a minute. But just a reminder to everyone on the line listening, feel free to post questions in the chat. You can either send them to me directly or post them. We'll be looking at those as we've got about 20 minutes left and want to make sure that we get to any of those questions as we have them. But Karen, let me turn back to you and have us look now at the next lens, which is workforce. Yeah, so workforce is interesting because I've touched on a little bit, and I may, uh, over the years, have become, um, and I, I grew up in a big family, so there's six of us. Some went to call, some some of us went to college, some did not, and so I've really thought long and hard about, okay, well, college isn't for everybody, but our country has has made that a singular mandate. For families and the byproduct, and, and meaning it's not for everybody just because by choice, which you should have choice. You shouldn't feel like you're not going to be accepted in a society because you don't want to follow a path that doesn't really cover a vocation that you're interested in. So it, you, we all do the very best if we work on things we're passionate about. And so there, then you have more matriculating students with loads of debt that in, in areas of, in subject areas, they're not interested in pursuing professions in oftentimes and taking lesser jobs that don't cover the debt. I strongly believe, and we stopped giving attention to some states are, are becoming better about this. And you, you are a participant in a lot of this work around apprenticeships. And Florida has some schools testing apprenticeship. Texas has schools testing apprenticeship, meaning that at an earlier stage in life, not at the, the freshman college year, you're actually giving equal career guidance to students as early as freshmen in high school around vocation. And what is the right way to actually address a workforce need? This feeds into healthcare, right? So why someone should spend four years accumulating university-level debt to be a healthcare technician or even a nurse that could be specifically tar targeted programming and networking in that field at a much lower cost, therefore a much higher ROI, it makes no sense to me why you wouldn't choose that path. Why, why we, as a society, make people feel less than because they don't have a college. I mean, I, and we can all be around this table and we can even, we're guilty of it. We say, we when we have a friend who's got a senior graduating, oh, where are they going to school? Where are they going to college, right? We all do it. And I'm, I check myself. So I'm like, who knows? You know, I had three, I had a couple of brothers that enlisted in the service. I have friends that, so I'm, I'm careful. There's a lot of ways. And in fact, the return on investment for apprenticeship and technical programs is much higher. And it fills a workforce need that we're finding right now, um, especially in this area of COVID. It's just funny, COVID is blowing wide open so many different kind of things we've all been noodling on and in making investments, actual financial investments in companies that we think we're solving some of these issues, but around work, around workforce. So take, take, um, there's a wonderful, uh, and I can't actually, because I'm in a, and bound by SEC, I can't give company, public company names and, uh, might be mistaken for support of or investment of, but there's a, an engineering and a, an energy company out of Texas, out of Florida that, does hire it, it actually built out an entire apprenticeship program that they pluck students out of high school and they start apprenticing for jobs they're placing in their company upon matriculation and these are jobs all paying more than fifty thousand dollars per year 
So you have a young 23-year-old man finishing his apprenticeship program or woman getting paid a starting salary of more than $50,000 a year for these highly technical jobs. This company's been piloting this for... Uh, so me as a, an investor, I would make... I would make an investment in a company like that. I said, okay, they are solving a need. They're actually putting individuals that would otherwise not get any education at all and probably end up in some lower skilled labor jobs into a profession identifying with an entire cohort of other apprentice colleagues and, and tracking up the career ladder. That's powerful. And there, and there are others. And so that company has been a really good voice for federal regulation around apprenticeship and how we fund, because if you think also like everything's governed, money kind of governs everything, right? So we're back to money. And so if we think about where we vote, we vote with our dollars and our investments on our balance sheet, but we also vote for policymakers who are going to influence those dollars, right? So at the end of the day, and so if you have policymakers that are making decisions about a pool of capital around education funding and workforce development funding, and there's that intersection, apprenticeship is kind of that intersection of education. I'm coming out of that pipeline, and now I'm readying this person for to contribute to work and pay taxes. You would think that you'd want someone there who's supportive and allocating more of that budget and reallocating some of that budget to those programs. But some of the um, paradigm shift has to happen in this country around college being the only track. I'm really hopeful that actually COVID changes that because you're exactly right. I mean, the return on investment of an apprenticeship program and the ability for that five generations of wealth building to be condensed to maybe two generations or less, right? And I do want to acknowledge that we've got some folks on the line who are doing this work and we've been really proud to support them on it. So Perscolis is an incredible partner um, with corporations who have apprenticeship programs. And um, we've been tracking and following the work that the mayor of New York has been doing as, as you talk about policy, right? Really making apprenticeships part of of policy and, and how companies are hiring and investing, as well as the universities at Shady Grove, which has a slightly different model, but really it's that two by two model, right? Starting in a community college and then matriculating up to your junior and senior year at a significantly reduced rate. So I am hopeful that COVID does pull the curtain back on some of these really powerful models that already exist. They do, and what they what they need is that they need broad policy support to scale it, right? Like right. that's how right. that's how education is scaled, and and I support and am familiar with all, of, and even some of the high schools like Don Don Bosco Crystal Ray does a really wonderful program at the high school level to kind mm-hmm. of bring it, and their entire student body are um, predominantly Latino and. Latinx and and Black, um, but tracking these students to careers very early on and getting introduced. So again, this is the social capital part of the formula. And I am a huge fan. Um, part of my Pomona Society, I mentor entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs that are, are looking at different education platforms that can scale, that are looking at, I'm a huge fan of apprenticeship programs and would support a policymaker who pledged to say, hey, I'm going to stand this up and start giving public national support by way of funding and budgets those programs and taking away from like we we're all in this battle right now of writing off college debt and I'm like but what about that doesn't solve the problem that doesn't solve the workforce problem and it doesn't solve the college readiness problem regardless and so what about funding to think about how we solve the workforce demand? So that's what COVID, to your point, is you know, is opening up this idea that okay, we're short electricity, we have healthcare professional shortages, we have, and we've we've seen that now in certain cities of density, and we have we have law enforcement shortages, we and we'll have more <laughs> coming on, I suspect, and we have electrician and plumbing and and. Mm-hmm. And all kinds of like construction and consulting, and time isn't well spent sitting in a general ed college course for those at a rate of a hundred or two hundred or three hundred more dollars per credit hour. And so I think we have to give a financial look to this. And again, it's a math formula. And if you you really want a heart an ROI that on kind of the human capital in our society, that's that's a that's tax dollars. You can actually you can calculate tax revenue on 
each of those jobs that are gained from apprenticeship. That because keep in mind, if you're in a service worker's job at not even $15 an hour, you're not paying taxes. You fall in the lowest part of our marginal brackets in this country. So you're not generating tax revenue. You're filling a, you're filling a space, right? Mm-hmm. So, and that, and all of that feeds this later part of our life cycle in kind of the cradle to grave, I say, but we've got, you know, a booming population and an ever growing population dependent on more programs that have to come from some source. So the more, mm-hmm. so I've been, and I've been kind of preaching this for more than a decade, I call it kind of, the more people we can grow into economic participation is better for everybody. Um, in these right. ways, I think you get there. Right. You know, we just got a question come in around what what we might see happen to four-year universities beyond potential apprenticeship focus. And one thing I wanted to call out that I've been reading a lot about and tracking is that as individuals look to that four-year education and the investment they will make in it, that they need to know that there is a return on investment. They, they almost need to know that there's a job waiting for them on the other side. And so... You know, I track very closely the Northeastern model of of how internships are essentially aligned and lined into the curriculum. And I'm curious what your take is on that or other other thoughts you're seeing about how four-year universities might respond to this. Yeah, moment. no, that's a great question because even in my business, we we adopt that model. So we, um, in financial planning and investment, we've, we've aligned ourselves with a few universities that have specific programs around financial planning that a student is, is raising their hand and saying, okay, I want to I want to have that career track. I'm going to target these classes. And then that program, what it does, it gets them ready for some of our national credentialing much quicker. So they become a financial planner much earlier than they would kind of stumbling around after college, sorting that out for the next five years, and then taking those exams eventually because your your higher sat your salary is going to be pegged to whether or not you pass those exams and get those, get those certifications, but it feeds directly into these four-year programs. And for example, um, when I was in college, so now, now more than 20 years ago, you didn't actually have a certified financial planning program embedded in the business school, like an official program, because we didn't think about financial services or wealth management. So, so specifically, we just thought, oh, get an econ degree or get a finance degree, and then we'll all just figure it out when we start working. Well, then what you had kind of springing to life about a decade ago are some of these personal financial planning programs because one of the big gaps in, in, in America is we haven't really solved the savings rate riddle. Part of the personal finance, finance riddle and the knowledge that families need to have to grow well so that asset that personal accountability to growing your own wealth, there are gaps of knowledge as to how to best do that. And so the personal financial planning industry kind of started saying, okay, to address that, perhaps we need a targeted education at the university level. And so the Certified Financial Planner Board, which is a public and a 501c3 that we all become kind of a member of, really lobbies on behalf of universities to put directed program. And that's just one subject area, but you can go deep into the healthcare space. And there are several that are meeting the demands embedded in a four-year umbrella, but two of those years almost almost mimic apprenticeship. And that's kind of what this does. And, and I like that model too, very much. And, and I think more companies now are high, like us, we're like, okay, these colleges are playing ball. We're going to we're going to align ourselves. They're going to give us a talent pool and a roster. We're going to have career day and interview. And so we've been successful at that. We've hired dozens of our newest associates over the past several years from these programs specifically and not from general ed. All right. We're going to put a pause on that one, even though I know we don't want to, to go into the last, work of our, <laughs> the last point of our, of our triangle here being healthcare. You just touched on it real quick, but I'm going to come back to you in terms of access to healthcare. And you know, I've been I've been struggling with this concept for a while, and again, it's amplified through COVID. But when it comes to healthcare, we have a system here in the U.S. that connects our ability to quality healthcare to a job. But as we know, in this economy, that system doesn't work so well when many people are out of work. So, 
you know, how different it might look if we connected someone's ability to access healthcare, not to their job, but to their existence, right? To their birth that we all had access to. Their human self, right? Right, right. Who knows what will come of it? But I do want you to talk about what you see and why you put healthcare as that third third stool. I I put this as a third stool because I see it, number one, as the biggest expense for many of my clients. And I also see it as the most limiting um, in terms of career mobility for people that want freedom to earn in a way that isn't being held hostage by a health plan. And if we look at, and we, we made some strides with the Affordable Health Care Act, but we, we didn't finish that work. And what COVID has opened up is, you know, and, and if you are, if you're, if you're uh, raised in poor zip codes, there's this notion of social determinants of health, right? You're living in conditions that aren't going to be the cleanest air, that are going to be densely populated. Um, children that grow up in, and there's a lot of data to support this, um, children that grow up in certain zip codes around especially that are pol- have high levels of pollution, have much higher rates of incidence for asthma, for example. So if you take a moment like COVID and you pull children out of a school that's, and also the schools and the institutions in these areas share in the same really poor health, I call health infrastructure. And, and so then we're growing this human in a really unhealthy way. And then we're also not giving them access to healthcare to solve any of those problems. Right. So, so, which is interesting. And we're, we're saying that, um, you can only have health care if your parents have a job and that job happens to give them health care. But oftentimes, as we mentioned earlier, in the poorest among us, the working poor, they're working a couple of jobs, neither meet the measure for qualifying for health care in those companies. And so everybody in the family is subject to the conditions by which they're living in in that, that home infrastructure or the education, the two places they're at they, they spend the most time and have poor health and poor health education around you know how to eat and how to be how to um, you know kind of spend your energy, right? Your health energy. And then you fast forward, you don't have as productive a worker. You don't have a child who is clear, is clear headed and free of conditions that are respiratory conditions. Um, and then now they're, they're susceptible at a greater, they're in an at risk group for COVID. And so how are we kind of solving those at risk groups? A lot of those at risk groups are a couple of, they, they, they line up in a couple of factions. And so what's interesting about healthcare, um, because the other piece of this ties into the workforce, is that data put out by McKinsey kind of showed that the millennial exiting college today will have seven different careers over their career. Like we used to laugh that maybe we'll have seven different jobs, but I'm probably in the same, threaded through the same function or career, right? I might go apply my expertise at a different firm or something like that. Now it's like re, we reimagine ourselves all the time. And so that new data really speaks to this idea. I talked about education mobility, but for us to have be growing humans that are healthy and productive, we have to separate workplace and healthcare plans. And health mobility is key to that because it's key to solving poverty. And because the other thing that I think a lot about is when you're living, if you're living in a high cost of living city in a densely populated city, and now we've demonstrated that we can actually work from home. We're having this whole conversation here from home. I can be anywhere. So now I can actually choose to not let my cost of living be the singular thing that keeps me poor, right? I can actually go do what I do in a much cheaper place to live and maybe not as dense, maybe with better education. So I create choice for myself. This is back to choice. And to me, that's why healthcare is so important. And it's also one of the places that many of us that face off with healthcare professionals that are the poorest among us are facing off with healthcare professionals in the most triage of ways. And so there isn't a relationship with a healthcare professional that's one of consultant, like say you and I might have. It's one that it's triage. I'm in an emergency. I'm going to an emergency room. It's the only way I can back channel getting coverage because that's just going to get written off by the system. And 
I don't know that that's the outcome we want, right? So through investment, right. you can support health, either health institutions, whether they are creating creating pharmaceuticals that deliver and make us healthier, or whether they're supporting infrastructures, hospitals and the like, or private hospitals that deliver to more people in an equal way um, and not in a triage way, um, because that's mm-hmm. also met with, um, with, with some racial discrimination oftentimes. So that's an area that I think is keeping a lot of people from feeling like they're immobile. And this concept of mobility post-COVID is, is one I'm really clinging to. It's a powerful one to be able to create it in this virtual world around education and workforce and healthcare and drive all of those. Those are the three most expensive levers on your balance sheet and drive the cost of those way down that means the other side of the balance sheet, the asset side goes up. And so you're actually growing wealth. Because, you know, why would you right now live in New York and pay 5000 for an apartment if you can, if you're working from home and you can go live in Iowa? Right. True. Choices. Right. Opened up so much. So, Karen, you're going to find us hard to believe, but it's at the top of the hour already. <laughs> so, we're going to do kind of a fast rundown of what we see as some actions that we could all take as a way to wrap us up here. And then we may have to go into part two of this conversation since I know there's a lot we want us to get to. But when we think about the roles that we all play, those on, on the call and those beyond the call, the actions we can take to drive equity, there's a few things I'm going to point out and I'm going to have you fill in the blanks. Business owners and employers, the levers that we can pull on how healthcare is offered who has access to that healthcare, how 401k programs are accessed, how we hire, how we work with vendors and suppliers, how we measure pay ratios between highest and lowest paid employees. I mean, you have talked about so many levers that yeah. my hope is folks on this line today have had a couple aha moments of there's more in their power than they realize. Yeah. And as CEOs and business owners, the Biggest two lever, levers are what you're paying for in healthcare and in helping your employees build retirement and savings. And one of the great things is the more you do as a company owner to put policies in place that allow, if not a hundred percent, pretty close to whether they're part time or not of your employment base to participate in savings, the better. That's the less dependent they, the, the their future state and wealth building look much better. They're more loyal. They're less dependent on a system to supplement um, what they might not be getting in wages. So there, there's nothing but, I think, positive economic outcomes for building a pretty comprehensive retirement savings plan. And then also populating that with choices that vote your values, like you've done, saying, okay, well, those are a lot of people that can influence some of those public companies through those retirement savings plans. Let's make sure we're giving people choices that are available, that are putting companies, at, investing dollars in companies that are addressing some of the issues we've talked about today around, around, around energy education, healthcare, and fair and equitable workforce. That's one way. And then also as on the workforce piece and, de- and developing as a business owner, I would just be very, very conscientious about who I'm putting in leadership around the table that that really represent a couple of things. They represent my entire employee base so that I think that I'm um, growing a company that actually speaks to everybody in it and that also represent what my consumers might want. That if I'm not representing what my consumers want, then I'm disconnected. You know, one of the interesting data points, what I mean by that is that if you have people that just look like you, we're just not going to see we're just going to see what we don't know, right? And one interesting data point about um, there's a, a this thing called a 15% pledge. And it speaks to big major retailers not actually putting shelf space, allowing sh- enough shelf space that actually represent 15% of the Black consumers that are the consumers of their stores, right? So think Walmart, think Target, think all these people. And... And having voices in leadership that spot those gaps and address those social needs and those demands that the, that the community has, that your customers have actually, and represent them fairly, those are, those are small governance changes. But, but creating a diverse governance committee is, is important. And that's something you have complete power to do. 
And because that also extends into being sure that you're putting healthcare policies in place that regardless of employment status, meet the needs of everybody until we as a country figure out how we truly solve health inequity and health coverage inequity. Because you're either you're either deeply poor and can only access it through Medicare, Medicaid systems, or you have full-time employment and you can tether it nicely to your work. And then some are, there's private plans in between, but they're they aren't for people that that make less than forty thousand dollars per year, which most of COVID, a lot of the, the individuals laid off, another uh, kind of statistic, you know, 40% of the folks laid off make less than $40,000 per year. So again, pushing people deeper into um, kind of an economic hardship. Well, as, as always, the time flies when we talk and um, you are full of amazing information and insightful information. So thank you for taking the time to talk today and to share your insights with this group. And um, I'm, I'm thinking that we'll have to do it again right now. I would, I would love that. You can, we can slice and dice in so many ways, but COVID has given us an opportunity, I think, to... Um, look at things with a fresh set of eyes and and actually act, right? There's some action in there that we talked about today that all of us can participate in. And I'm available well, for any longer follow-up. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Karen. Thanks, everyone, for joining us today. All right, friends, that brings us to the end of another episode of Mission Forward. In this season of thanks, I am so grateful to you for listening, sharing, and engaging with us on this season's show. I am also extremely grateful to my friends Pete and Andy at True Story FM for their expertise in bringing this show to you each week, and to May Robinson for shepherding this project on behalf of Mission Partners. I am so grateful to all of you. Okay, so we are coming close to wrapping this first season, and as always, I would appreciate you sharing and reviewing this show with your colleagues who you believe will find our work and these interviews as powerful as we do. Drop me a line at carrie at mission.partners. And I look forward to seeing you back here for the next episode of Mission Forward.